to take another one of the discourses on in and out breathing and um, starts out as just as the others do so it's all dot dot so I have to find where there isn't any dot dot Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was staying near Savati, the Jeta Grove in Anathapinika's park, and then the Buddha addressed the monks, saying, Monks, and yes, Lord, replied those monks, and then the Buddha said, There's one condition which, if cultivated and made much of, is of great fruit, of great profit. What is that one condition? It is concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. Now, that too in itself is interesting because it's usually assumed that the Buddha said there's only one way, and that's mindfulness. But that, and that's the only one thing. But here he says there's one condition, and... um, you know, concentration on the in and out breath. So there's another thing that is of equal importance. And how cultivated monks, how made much of is concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing of great profit, of great fruit. In this method, a monk goes to a forest or the root of a tree or a lonely place sits down cross-legged, holding the body straight, and setting mindfulness in front of him, he breathes in mindfully and mindfully breathes out. As he draws in a long breath, he knows a long breath I draw in. As he draws in a short breath, he knows a short breath I draw in. As he breathes out a short breath, he knows I breathe out a short breath. Thus he makes up his mind. I shall breathe in feeling it goes through the whole body. Feeling it goes through the whole body, I shall breathe out. Calming down the body, I shall breathe in. Calming down the body, I shall breathe out. I'm not quite sure what all the dot dots are all about. And makes up his mind of cheating. Thus, he makes up his mind. Contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe in. Contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe out. Contemplating dispassion. Contemplating a cessation. Contemplating renunciation, I shall breathe in. Contemplating renunciation, I shall breathe out. Thus cultivated monks, thus made much of, the concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing is of great fruit, of great profit. Now that's exactly what was said before. I'm just re- reread it. But now comes the new part. Formerly, before I myself, this the Buddha is talking, was enlightened with perfect insight and was yet a bodhisattva I used generally to spend my time in this way. A bodhisattva is a person that is intent on enlightenment, 
it is sometimes considered to be only the Buddha was a Bodhisattva in some explanations in other explanations that everybody who meditates is a Bodhisattva well to be quite correct I think we can say that a person who is intent on enlightenment is a Bodhisattva because Bodhi is enlightenment and Sattva is the purification Sattvic is that which is pure so it's the purity of enlightenment which one is uh, striving for so he used to live like that when he was yet a Bodhisattva unenlightened as I generally lived in this way neither my body nor my eyes were fatigued and my mind became freed from the afterwards now what he's saying is that the body nor the eyes became tired because he was very concentrated the um, eyes becoming tired could and that's the commentator's um, footnote could refer to exercises that were done by yogis and which included staring at a bright object or holding the breath so this is a a commentary it's from the commentary and uh, it's a footnote that that could be what it means that the eyes become tired the eyes also become tired when one is tense when there is stress the eyes can become very tired so as he was doing this meditation he was not stressed and he was not tense it could mean just as much that whether the commentators have the right perception of that or not one doesn't know now the interesting part is that his mind was freed from the asavas because the asavas are translated as cankers or taints or corruptions and they are actually the same as our cravings they're similar to our cravings and also they have the um, the fetters built in so it's just another way of showing our impurities and how we can become pure now the four and there's usually four sometimes only three but we'll use four the four taints I think might be the best word the four taints first one is sensual desire the desire for the gratification of our senses the second one is desiring eternal existence the third one is wrong view wrong view of self of course and the fourth one ignorance ignoring the ignoring Nibbana and ignoring the Four Noble Truths but particularly the third one now the sensual desire the desire for sensual gratification is also our first hindrance and uh, it's also the first craving the craving for sensual gratification so it re-arises again and again because it is in the in the teaching because it is such a strong 
um, obstacle. It is based on not so much a lack of understanding. I think it is not so difficult to understand that sensual gratification doesn't last. I think everybody can understand that. I don't think that's very difficult, is it? <clears throat> I mean, what we see here, taste, touch, smell, or think, it's got to disappear and we have to run after it again. I don't know that that is any of the problem. I think that uh, the real problem lies in the fact that we haven't really seen the dukkha in it. The dukkha in the sensual gratification. Now that, we see that clearly, then it prevents us from running after it again. Now when we see dukkha, it does not mean to become unhappy. On the contrary, when we see dukkha, it means that we have a feeling of seeing the truth and the seeing the truth makes people happy and not unhappy so seeing dukkha very often people who haven't got much uh, understanding of the Buddhist teaching say that they don't like it because it talks about dukkha all the time and it seems to uh, foster the dukkha it seems to um, underwrite it but it's just the other way around what the Buddha is trying to do is to show us the dukkha so that we eventually just come to terms with it with the fact that it's always there and when it's always there that it's no longer a cause for unhappiness but a cause for the desire for deliverance so deliverance from existence or from illusion shall we say that the deliverance from the illusion so if we can see the dukkha in the sensual gratification then we have seen it properly now how do we see the dukkha in sensual gratification first of all we have to constantly renew it the sense contact has to be renewed and as we have to renew it we have to spend time and energy and we have to sometimes go a far way to get it we can't always find it right in front of our nose if there's something that we're looking for. So sometimes it's quite difficult to uh, gratify a sensual desire. We now, we can re relate to that when we think of sexual desire. The difficulties in entailed in gratifying that are legion and the difficulties which arise out of the gratification are even worse. So, <laughs> so with that, we may have be able to relate to the fact that it's dukkha. But that applies to all of our uh, sensual uh, gratifications. We have to go and do something about it. That's the first dukkha. The second dukkha, which is really strong, is the fact that it doesn't last. As nice as it may be, it just doesn't last. It can't. It's falls apart very quickly. I think that the longest one of our sense contacts, which may last more than just a millisecond, might be actually the taste. 
that might be the longest because hearing is of course a vibration which is always moving and constantly changing taste of course is too but it seems to last a little longer and of course now obviously we don't live to taste nice things it's, uh, nobody has that absurd idea so the, uh, the sensual gratification which we're looking for and which we do get there's no doubt about it we can have it has this inbuilt dukkha of being so very short-lived that almost immediately when getting it it's already gone and in some instances a person who is mindful and, and aware and alert is aware of this and actually feels um, bereft oh already finished what a pity it may not come to that a person may um, still keep the memory going for a little while of the pleasant uh, sense contact but that memory is also very limited it's um, almost as limited as the sense contact itself it's a little longer but not much that it's, uh, it's quite an interesting experiment doesn't last the memory doesn't last either so these are the these are the first two aspects that it falls apart that it that we have to go and get it so we have to expend time and energy but it has another aspect which is dukkha and that is the the actual the craving for it because we feel unfulfilled so we want to get something now I think we can relate to that when for instance in a meditation course we get bored we don't know what to do anymore we've done it all understand it all it's uh, no longer interesting and then the mind is looking for something either wants to go and have a nice sight see something new or have a little, little conversation hear something new or eat something or uh, something anything anything to get out of the boredom that is arising so what we are experiencing at that time we're experiencing a lack we're experiencing something missing and because of that we're wanting to get something so the arising of the desire is caused by dukkha so the whole thing is dukkha all the way isn't it so if we could see that in the sense desires and see them in that way it is possible to let go and that is the disenchantment that's the step of disenchantment which I have already um, mentioned day before yesterday because we see that none of the things that we can get through the senses have a real fulfillment embedded in them and by ha- it's very interesting actually as an experiment to watch a certain sense desire come up quite the innocent and not the, in any way of referring to something which is of great importance anything quite innocent watch it 
and then look at it in the way of dukkha and see it disappear. It's no longer interesting. It just goes. Now, of course, if we immediately try to gratify the sense desire, which we usually do, we haven't got time to think about it in the way of dukkha. So then, of course, we've lost that one. So we start the next round. Um, the, um, it's attained, the sense desire is attained, which must not be misunderstood to think that that anything nice that happens to us through the senses is attained. It's the desire that is attained. The wanting any desire is attained. doesn't matter what desire it is. Right. Light for enlightenment. <laughs> so the uh, the uh, attained is not that when we uh, see a, a nice thing that it is something that is uh, um, gives a good feeling. That's an automatic reaction, but the desire for it, and that desire has, of course, um, is deeply embedded. There's no. Um, not just a superficial thing, it's very deeply embedded. It's uh, completely caught up in our desire for existence because this is how our existence happens. And it only disappears completely for the non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment. So obviously we have a little bit to deal with there, but at least we can make some attempts at seeing it correctly. The Buddha described this uh, desire for sensual gratification as being a debtor, having a debt and always having to pay it off. We are in debt to our senses and we have to pay off this interest, which is also quite interesting and can be easily proven by anyone, if we have a certain sense desire and we gratify it over and over again, eventually that particular gratification will no longer gratify. It has to become stronger. We have to pay interest. It's um, not, not interesting anymore. It's boring. So we have to do get more. The second one of our... Um, uh, taints is in this case not just desiring existence but eternal existence now that is a very strong um, strongly mentioned in also in for instance in Christianity and this is how rebirth is misunderstood people like the idea of rebirth because they think they're coming back. So anything that hasn't been done nicely this time, we can do it better next time. They think maybe they're going to arrive with a little notepaper in their hand <laughs> on which everything is written that they've done wrongly. And now this time, of course, it's all going to work much better. But this is all completely um, um, wrong thinking because there's nobody here this time so obviously that nobody isn't going to come back. 
It's somebody who's going to think that he's, he or she is somebody entirely different next time. None of us, I dare say, have a very distinct idea who we were last time. Well, the one next time isn't going to have any idea either. I mean, some people have recollections, but it's a rare uh, occurrence. Most people haven't got a clue. So the next one isn't going to know, oh, I was Pierre last time, or I was Stephen or Roland. Nothing. Pierre, Stephen, Roland, Barbara, everybody's going to be gone. Totally. Utterly. And this is why this idea and this thought process which comes about in people's minds about rebirth uh, is latching on to, well, it's okay, you know, I'm going to be back. Great. Um, it's a totally wrong idea. And this is, it gratifies our desire to not get lost in the shuffle because this ego idea that we have is, of course, something that wants, wants us to stick around and be. We don't want to not you know, completely disregard ourselves. Well, I mean, that's an odd thought, isn't it? So we want to be, and so there we have this uh, um, desire and this, this rebirth that can happen. It sounds quite okay. Now, of course, in other religions, it's uh, you know you get to live in paradise, or you get a nice, uh, or you get a ni- nice harp given on which you can play for the rest of the eternity, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, it all goes along the same pathway. It's all the same thing, you know. Whether it's rebirth or a harp or whatever, it doesn't make any difference at all. It all gratifies this desire for uh, eternal existence. And this desire for eternal existence, that only disappears for the Arahant. This is one of the last five fetters. I mean, we have ten altogether. And up to the non-returner, we only get rid of five, half. We've done practically the whole thing, and we've only got rid of half. So it's a real bother, isn't it? (laughs) 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 So then... hmm? Not correct. (laughs) Not correct, no. It's a bit discouraging, actually. (laughs) But uh, that's why there are so few arahans around because it isn't all that easy. The, uh, in, in the fetters, it is uh, expressed in this way that the non-returner uh, still has a desire for rebirth either in the, um, in the subtle form realms or in the formless realms. In other words, he wants to be reborn in one of these uh, blissful states. Which um, and here is expressed as a desire for eternal existence. Now again, the Buddha said this is all nonsense because even those realms, which are of very high states of consciousness and do have a lot of bliss in them, but they're also impermanent. There is no eternal existence. The two words "eternal existence" are mutually exclusive. Existence can never be eternal. So there's a mutual exclusivity to these two words. That's why our desires, which we have now expressed as the sensual gratification, gratification of the senses, and external, eternal existence, both desires are impossible to gratify. So we have made up 
an idea about ourselves which um, doesn't have any factual basis. We these desires are, cannot be gratified. So because of that, we are always not quite at ease. There's always something somewhere that should still happen and isn't quite happening yet. And if we are still not quite um, having seen the whole dukkha and everything, we are still liable to blame somebody for that. That we are not totally at ease, that we are not totally satisfied, um, completely contented, we are liable to blame somebody. He or she said, he or she did, or he or she didn't do. That's totally absurd. But that's the way humanity lives. There's no way we can be totally contented, satisfied, at ease, until we've got rid of these last five fetters. And that's our hand. Sorry to say. <laughs> So now the next one is the wrong view, and I think I have already mentioned it quite um, uh, quite a number of times, but maybe I, I mention it now in a different context. This one, this wrong view one, um, that, now that's not so bad with the wrong view, that goes away with the stream entry, with the first experience of the unconditioned. The stream enterer loses the first three fetters. And the first three fetters are wrong view, the belief in rites and rituals, and skeptical doubt. Now you see that only the stream enterer really loses skeptical doubt. Up to then, we can, um, through our intellectual understanding, soothe our skeptical doubt and replace it with the joy of the practice. But there's always that little nagging fear in the back, which is doubt. Can I really do that? Don't they have an easier way? This all sounds a bit complicated. Or the Buddha is dead a long time. Maybe there'll be somebody around that's alive now. All these things are in the back of the mind somehow. The worst one is, can I really do a thing like that? That's the most common uh, skeptical doubt and also the most insidious. It's uh, uh, like um, nagging in the mind. And because of that uncertainty, and lack of uh, conviction that one has about one's own ability, it is damaging to one's practice. Only the stream entry has absolute and utter proof that Nibbana is, and the way to do it is exactly the way the Buddha said. He's got proof. He doesn't have to doubt anything. But this business about the wrong view is quite interesting, and I'll just explain it in the light of stream entry. Because the stream enterer, the one who has the first experience of the unconditioned, 
has experienced the the relief which comes from having a moment where there is no observer where there's nobody telling any story where there's nobody wanting anything where there's actually complete stillness not the same as the stillness of the fourth jhana because there's still a small observer there but a total stillness where these mind movements which have been recognized as dukkha because they're moving about um, stop for a moment now that brings this the stream enter to the intellectual conviction that the self is an illusion it's an intellectual conviction that totally convinced nobody can ever change that person's mind but because it's only the very first time that this has been experienced the person doesn't feel that all the time they still know themselves to be this certain person uh, practically all the time unless they put their mind back on the experience of the fruit moment of the moment after having had this Nibbanic experience the moment after where this relief uh, arises and the feeling of there wasn't anybody there when one puts one's mind back onto that moment then that is again experienced maybe not in the same strength but certainly in the same um, kind of feeling but when one doesn't do that the stream enter still thinks of him or herself as me and therefore the stream enter has not touched greed or hate now can you imagine what most of humanity doesn't even practice never mind but gets to be, to be stream enter so the greed and hate in the world are of such proportion that the only thing that is astounding is that one is surprised at it. That is the way of humanity. Because even the stream enter who's seen Nibbana hasn't touched upon greed and hate yet. But wrong view is gone. That person can now, when intellectually um, requested by himself or another person always speak from that experience and from that intellectual complete conviction that we are operating under an illusion so that wrong view is, is that which only disappears then now of course we have many wrong views and if you remember we had lots of right views mentioned earlier when we had the uh, Noble Eightfold Path and we have lots of wrong views which usually we can sum up as being connected with our ignoring impermanence we're totally ignoring impermanence the whole of humanity lives as if they're going to live forever because that's how they would like to they amass things and uh, 
they would like to think of themselves as being quite permanent and they see the things which are happiness producing namely when insight comes through dukkha they see that as great tragedies and they they see um, that which is actually dukkha namely our sensual gratification as sukha as happiness so the wrong view is usually concerned with the fact that we like to disregard impermanence and like to make everything solidly stationary which it can't be that we disregard the fact or that we mix up dukkha with sukkha have the opposite view always that we see one as the other and that we put a core substance into all that exists particularly ourselves we disregard non-self or emptiness so these are that's usually the summing up of the wrong view and uh, since we can have insights into parts of these things bits and pieces there are many moments of insight which can arise but the disappearance of wrong view is the moment of stream entry and the fruit moment which follows the moment the past moment is not something that one can recognize there's no observer but the fruit moment is a result and that has to be in a certain way in order to have had the past moment so as a proof of the past moment the fourth one is ignorance and that is ignoring the fact that we are are operating under an illusion and it only goes away with arahant it is again one of the last five fetters altogether maybe i should mention that we have 10 fetters and i can now maybe just enumerate what happens with them the next two greed and hate are only lessened for the once returner even the once returner which is the second time that one experiences nibbana has not got rid of greed and hate he's only lessened it but he has lessened it to such an extent that life becomes much more bearable hate is only slight irritation and greed are preferences which makes life much much easier because when there are preferences one can drop them but when there's a real desire it's extremely difficult to let go now when there is only irritation it's quite easy to let go of that but when there's real hate or anger it's quite difficult so the one to turn has a much easier life but still has only lessened the next two fetters and it's only the non-returner who's got rid of greed and hate there's no irritation and there's no desires at all then because even the preferences are not important anymore it's just um an acceptance of the fact 
that nothing is completely satisfying. But the non-returner has still five fetters. And what he has still has is, for instance, conceit. Now, it doesn't mean that this is a conceited person. It means that he's conceiving of a very subtle self. Now, this subtle self is not this gross body, nor is it the gross mind, but it can be, for instance, for a non-returner, it can be that which is experienced as personal mind as part of universal mind. That's still a subtle understanding of self. Because there's still this idea of having one part of universal self. So this conceit is a conceiving which is a very subtle um, and uh, hard to notice um, misunderstanding still. Then there's still restlessness. Now of course the restlessness is very also mild but it's still there because that person has not finished the whole path. There's still as little bit of self that would like to have some gratification. It's always the self, the ego, would like to get something. So that is little, still there and that is usually uh, found in the mind but it can be physically also expressed, of course. And then there is um, still ignorance which means ignoring the completeness of the illusion. And as I said before, the two cravings for eternal existence, namely this craving for being in the um, subtle form realm or in the formless realm. So those five are still there. And they're all based on that misunderstanding that's still in the mind that although there isn't this very separate person, there is something that is part of everything. So within that everything, there has to be then some substance in order to be part of that. So this is a non-returner, um, of course has a nice life because he has no greed or hate, but um, it is said that a non-returner is reborn in the highest realms, in the f one of the four Brahma realms, and uh, there has to finish the work and will finish the work, but it can la take a long time because these Brahma realms are so long-lasting because the time element is totally different that we know from our own um, level here, of the human level. It, in the Deva realms, it is said that um, 70 years, the lifespan of a human, is like 20 minutes in the Deva realm. <laughs> so we have, uh, so the Buddha tried to also explain that this is not a desirable um, re-existence or existence to go to, but um, 
certainly preferable to this one and because the time element is so different because of the concentration in mind maybe these eons that one has to spend in those Brahma realms are, don't become too boring I, I wouldn't know Buddha didn't say so he just said don't try for that either try to get fully enlightened so these are the um, four asavas some uh, four attains sometimes only three sense desire and desiring eternal existence and uh, wrong view sometimes the ignorance is not added but sometimes it is it depends which one of the suttas one, one reads so because he, he was still unenlightened but he was using the in and out breath as his med- meditation subject and he became enlightened because when you free yourself from these you become enlightened so next thing he says is therefore if a person should desire may neither my body nor my eyes be fatigued and by not clinging may my mind be freed from the taints he must give swift attention to the same intent concentration on in and out breathing intent might be the uh, uh, important word here because intent concentration means that one really stays with it and uh, from what one reads here one could assume that he spent many hours a day doing that so was able to get enlightened in that way So by to be the body not fatigued, nor the eyes fatigued, and not and by not clinging, may my mind be freed. The Buddha often says, Nibbana is not clinging. Not clinging to what? To this. Not clinging to that. One can practice it. It's an interesting practice. If one really pays attention, one recognizes how much clinging there is. Many of the things we do, all of the things we do, and all of the things we want to do, are all colored by this clinging to self. If a person should desire, whatsoever memories and plans I have, attached to the worldly life may they be abandoned he must give strict attention to the same intent concentration so if one doesn't want to have memories and plans which are attached to the worldly life particularly of course in meditation what the Buddha is saying in order to get rid of memories and plans which are future and past eh? because the plans are for the future memories are for the past our labeling future and past Uh, if one doesn't want to have that as a disturbance in one's meditation one has to be intently concentrated on in and out and naturally they flood in again as one stops one's meditation but if one then also has a intention to let go and be mindfully attentive to the moment 
the meditation is much, much, much easier. The next one that the Buddha says here is a, another teaching in itself, just like the pains are a teaching in themselves, and the translation is not so wonderful, so I'll try and change it. If a person should desire, may I dwell conscious of repulsiveness for what is not repulsive, dwell unconscious of repulsiveness for what is repulsive, may I dwell conscious of repulsiveness both for what is not and for what is, both for what is repulsive and what is not, may I dwell unconscious of repulsiveness, we must do likewise. Well, what the Buddha is uh, expressing here are called the five Arya Idis. Arya are noble, and idis are powers. And it's the same word as in Sanskrit. Supernatural powers. Something like, uh, um, maybe walking on water or one of the things which has been uh, quite um, prominent in uh, not so long ago was uh, having the body elevate itself and that type of thing. And the Buddha was against all this sort of thing. He um, did not approve of it. He said there were such powers. He did not deny that they were there. And he actually has a list of them. But he said, this is the noble power. And he often did that. Um, he used the kind of um, everyday understanding of a certain thing and changed it into a really spiritual understanding. So these powers that people gain, and they do gain them through um, concentration and jhanas, one can gain powers. He um, did not approve of that at all, but said, to cultivate these. And what it means is this, that one becomes aware of something which is beautiful and uh, attractive and recognizes the um, arising desire. Now, the rising desire may be for having, the rising desire may be for keeping, the, the, the rising desire may be for uh, sharing. It may be something, anything, that latches on to that object, subject, person or thing. It may be quite innocent. In our society, it may have absolutely no connotation of being um, evil. But what we learn through this practice is the seventh factor of enlightenment, equanimity. 
So what we try to practice is the understanding of when we see something which is beautiful, hear something which is beautiful, somebody is supporting our ego concept or whatever, uh, if we uh, taste something that is beautiful, smell something or even think something, that we recognize the fact that it's impermanent, that it does not have a core substance which will continue to satisfy us. So what the Buddha is teaching is the balance to that which we desire to see its opposite side. doesn't mean that we now think that everybody looks ugly. It's totally unnecessary. If I don't desire anybody, I don't have to think that everybody looks ugly because I don't think everybody looks so wonderful that I want to have them or keep them or, or be near them. But if a certain person should arouse that kind of desire, that that person has got to have or I want to be with or anything like that, that is the time then to recognize the impermanence of that body, uh, of that uh, person, and also the um, fact that having seen one's own insides by taking them all out, recognizing the fact that everybody looks like that, seeing the other side of it, not just the skin or the outer person or the nice words or anything like that but recognizing the fact that this is also nothing but a phenomenon. Seeing the opposite so that there is a balance in the middle. The Buddha's path is called the middle way. That's what we need to do. Get into the middle. Now the other way, the second step of that, second Arya Idi, noble power, is to see something, or let's just say see, or hear, those are the two strongest, seeing and hearing, which we find just terribly repulsive. Maybe somebody scolds us. Very repulsive, isn't it? And then we recognize the fact that that is a great learning experience. We see the good in it. So whatever we dislike, we can see the good side in it. So if, for instance, we see a decaying body and we are repulsed by it and find the sight and the smell extremely obnoxious, we can like it because it shows us the truth of the laws of nature always getting back to the middle. That's a noble power, more important than being able to walk through walls or be clairvoyant or clairaudient, anything like that. This is far more important, the Buddha said. And the third step is to see the repulsiveness in both in that which is beautiful and in that which is 
not beautiful. So that we always have on hand or on mind, in mind, the immediate recognition of impermanence, the immediate recognition of non-satisfaction through whatever person, thing, thought, whatever it is, non-satisfaction, and also immediately remember that all this has no core or phenomena, the three characteristics. And then the fourth one is to see the attractiveness in that which is repulsive and that which is not repulsive. So to know that whenever we see something which really um, we find impossible to accept or hear something, we recognize its value to us, that we can see both sides. And if there is something that's beautiful, we try to see the beautiful without the desire. And then the fifth one, which is the epitome of the whole powers, and which is again an, an Arahant's prerogative to be able to do that, that there is nothing arising in the mind whether the thing looks beautiful or doesn't look beautiful it's not necessary to anymore to make anything arise about it because there's neither desire nor rejection arising the thing just is and that's of course the complete equanimity everything just is it isn't any more desirable or it's not undesirable that is the, the fifth uh, noble path now with the um, and the third and the fourth one prepare one for that if we can see that no matter what there is it has the good aspect and the bad aspect in it then eventually we can come to the fifth one where everything just is there and it doesn't have any significance for us anymore so in the beginning we practice the first two and that is a most important practice for equanimity now the Buddha says that That again, the attention on in and out breath are a great, as a concentration on them, are a great help for being able to actually do this practice of seeing these different aspects of the same thing. Because the concentrated mind is a mind which has the cap- capacity to direct itself. In other words, a non-trained mind, a mind that has never concentrated in meditation and never even tried, cannot do this. It sees something beautiful, well, it's beautiful and wants it. It sees something awful and can't stand it, so rejects it. 
But a mind which has been trained is able eventually to be directed or to direct itself to where it wants to be. That's why the concentration of the meditation is a necessary ingredient to do this practice of the noble path. So that may be enough on that. Or maybe I should read the last little paragraph which still belongs to that. If a person should desire to do this, to do this practice, rejecting alike what is non-repulsive and what is repulsive, repulsive may I dwell indifferent, oh, sorry, equanimous, wrong, wrong translation, may I dwell equanimous, mindful and composed. You must also do the concentration on in and out breath. So that's the, um, the fifth one now mentioned separately that when one has no interest in either the one that's beautiful or the one that isn't, the concentration is absolutely necessary with in and out breath. So we can see from these suttas, and it goes on and on with many suttas, how important the Buddha thinks the uh, attention on in and out breath is. Of course, they do repeat themselves also. It's not always something new. Right, any questions? Yes. Yes. I didn't see exactly the details between the wrong view and the ignorance. Well, wrong view is an intellectual but when a wrong view is eliminated, it is in the stream entry, it's an intellectual understanding conviction that there's nobody there. And it can, the feeling of that can be resurrected when one goes back to the fruit moment, the moment of experience. One can have this elimination of wrong view already without stream entry, but it won't be quite as solid. One can already have understood that this whole business about self is an illusion. But ignorance, in the Buddha's terminology, is not what we call ignorance in, our la- in the everyday language. There is a way of using the same words in different meanings. And ignorance in this way always means ignoring of the Four Noble Truths, which means ignoring of the totality of Nibbana, because it only leaves one, this ignorance only leaves at Arahant. So that is the completeness of getting rid of this self-illusion. That's getting rid of ignorance. A wrong view is the beginning of it. And then wrong view also has the notes um, not seeing impermanence, not seeing dukkha, not seeing um, the l- lack of core substance. So in other words, one has other, abili- other possibilities of gaining some right view, whereas ignorance all, only refers to the self. Okay? Anything else? Yes. When the mind 
gravity comes from pointed on the breath, the in and out breath. Is that in essence any different in a result of that one pointedness? Is that any different than being one pointed on, say, impermanence or anything else for that matter? I mean, is, is there anything uh, intrinsically uh, more important about becoming becoming one pointed on the breath because it is mentioned so often? Hmm. The uh, importance of the uh, one-pointedness on the breath in the first instance is to get to the jhanas. But afterwards the Buddha talks about being concentrated on the breath and contemplating the insight. So I don't know that he's, well, I, I, he never says that one is more important than the other, but there are two different me. <coughs> there are two different pathways and the first one in that first sutta which we read it first went through the jhanas and then through the inside and both were connected with the breath let's see where it is yes here it came, um, actually this second one that I've just read also has it in it, but I didn't re- want to read everything the same again. First it was feeling the swell of pity, I shall breathe in. Feeling the swell of pity, I shall breathe out. The sense of ease, and then, um, then uh, as he comes to the, the next thing, it's already feeling aware of all mental factors. I breathe in, breathe out, and calming the mental factors then comes gladdening my mind. So that was um, the second jhana. Huh? And uh, then the next paragraph is already contemplating impermanence I breathe in, contemplating impermanence I breathe out. And then it goes on from impermanence to dispassion and then from dispassion to cessation. So when one sees this as it is uh, presented here, the first instance is to get use the in and out breath to get to the concentration, to the jhanas, to the absorption. And then, having had done that, using the breath as one's concentration factor to get to the inside. In other words, when the insight ar- arises, it is uh, also based on the concentrated factor fact of the mind, but it has been directed towards impermanence whereas in the first instance it was directed towards PT. So there's two different pathways, mm-hmm. but they have used the same method. Is that one pointiness on the breath, is that just in order to gain energy in the mind, so that the mind becomes uh, very, very strong and able to penetrate? Sure. So mm. could it be another like impermanence, I mean if one particular mind happens to have a, a tendency to be able to give attention and become pinpointed on one particular thing, like impermanence, would that, is that just as useful as, as the, the breath? That's what I was oh, instead of the breath using something else? Yeah. Is there anything intrinsic in the breath that makes it uh, the one to oh, go right. for? 
Well, the Buddha certainly used the breath over and over again, but he does use other meditation methods. In order to come to calm, he uses the casinas, which are color discs, which you can first put outside and then put in your mind and then have that. That's another way of getting to calm. Um, loving kindness to getting to calm is very, very um, often mentioned, but that gets you to the jhanas. Um, and for insight, he uses the cemetery in meditations, of which there are nine different ones, you know, seeing your body yeah. in different ways. And um, what else is he using for insight? The, uh, the uh, elements in the 32 parts of the body. Uh, all these things are also used as methods for insight. But the most, the most often mentioned one is the breath. Now, he seems to say that this is very important, yes. He does seem to say that. Um, but I, it does not exclude the fact that one can get to the same results without using the breath. It never excludes that. It's quite possible and has been done because there is a, a sutta where there is a monk becoming enlightened because he was having loving kindness. He had so strong loving kindness that it, it brought him to enlightenment. So it, he does mention the breath most often, but it never excludes that it can be done in different ways. Anything else? Yes, it does not in exclude interest, mm -hmm. but it excludes the, uh, the attachment to the result. It excludes the, um, the attachment to the ownership, and it certainly excludes desire. Mm -hmm. Equanimity does not have desire in it. Yes. Can you remember the number of the Buddhist said that the monk was doing loving kindness meditation? Can you remember the Buddhist said that the monk was doing loving kindness meditation? I think it was Anuruddha. I, um, it could be in the, one of the, um, Lives of the Disciples. I think it's in one of the Lives of the Disciples. Uh, I'm not sure which one it was. I think it's in the Lives of the Disciples that one of them was getting enlightened with loving kindness. In fact, the story goes that he used to go on his arms round, and he, you know, and the, in the a Theravadan monk is not supposed to say anything when you go on your arms round. Not supposed to you say, "Give me a little food" or something like that, because it's not begging. Um, so you're supposed to stand in front of the house with your arms full, and if somebody wants to give you something, they come out and put it in. 
So he used to stand in front of the house with his aunt boy and have so much loving kindness for the people inside. Uh, and then when they came out and gave him something, that he exuded so much loving kindness to them that it became he became uh, completely immersed in it, and that uh, completely um, eliminated all his um, hindrances, all his uh, taints, and purified him so that he became enlightened. Uh, I, I, yes, at the time when he was actually standing there. He was standing there getting, waiting for his arm food. <laughs> yes. No, not at all. Their awareness is the same as mindfulness. Equanimity is not, uh, not getting excited. It's being even-minded, not liking the beautiful and not disliking the ugly, not having any um, kind of uh, desire for that which appears to be um, desirable and attractive and not having any rejection of that which seems undesirable and unattractive. That's equanimity. Bare awareness would help. Anything else? Okay. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that your heart is made out of pure gold, very valuable, very beautiful. Containing all the love that exists in the universe, in that beautiful golden heart within you. Feel the warmth and the strength that love generates in the heart.
And now imagine that this golden heart, full of love, opens up like a door. And the love that is contained in it starts flowing out of it in all directions. First, it fills this room and touches everyone here. And then it flows further. There's no keeping it back. Flows all around. touching everything and everyone in its wake. flows into the cities, towns and villages, covers the whole country, as if there were a flood. It goes further all over this globe, out into the universe. There's no way to stop it, no way to hold it back, no way to separate it. full of warmth and strength and care embracing everything and everyone in its wake
I now direct the flood of your love to anyone special where you would like it to go. And now to anyone whom you don't care about very much. Now to those who you might think would benefit specifically from your love. Direct your love to the creatures of the forest who are our companions. Think of people and 
animals who might be suffering more than usual. Let the flood of your love with its warmth and its strength reach out to those embracing them touching their hearts Let the door of your heart remain wide open. Feel the warmth and the strength and the care of your love within you. that you actually become love. Being loved, feel the joy and fulfillment of that. May all beings have love in their hearts.